Hi, everyone. Today is December 12th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Arnold Kriegstein. He is the John Bowes Distinguished Professor in Stem Cell and Tissue Biology and founding director of the Eli and Edith Broad Center of Regeneration Medicine and Stem Cell Research at UCSF. Hi. Hi. His research focuses on the way in which neural stem and progenitor cells in the embryonic brain produce neurons. His work established... um, that radial glial cells are neuronal stem cells and also identified a second type of precursor cell produced by radial glial cells that is responsible for generating specific neuronal subtypes. Uh, He has recently begun to characterize the progenitor cells within the developing human brain to determine the genetic profiles of specific progenitor populations and to explore how these cells contribute to the huge expansion of neuron number that characterizes human cerebral cortex. Is that approximately right? Yes, that is. <laughs> like you said, more than enough. <laughs> okay, um, great. So around the room we have Charlie Wilson. Hello. Hi, Charlie. We've got uh, Gary Galfo. Hello. And we've got Annie Lynn. Hello. Yay, Annie Lynn's a frequent guest. Thank you for joining us. She's going to become a regular. Uh, and I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, so I, I guess most of what we understand about cortical development has been drawn from studies of rodent cortex, but I guess there's a there's a problem there in that human and rodent cortex are so fundamentally different in terms of neuron number, surface area, interneuron diversity, etc. Um, so in order to understand human cortical development, it sounds like you've almost completely abandoned the rodent model and are actually uh, able to study human cortical tissue, I guess in partnership, in a lucky partnership with San Francisco General Hospital. The results point to some key species differences in cortical ultrastructure during gestation, um, and I hope you're going to explain these better than I will attempt to right now, but but namely um, the proliferation of a, a region called the outer subventric- subventricular zone in humans that's absent in rodents, um, and I guess this is mostly owing to a, a novel radial glial subtype that you've recently identified. So can you um, fill us in on that story, please, and, and then comment as to whether we should understand this these these huge principles as the key to understanding human neocortical expansion relative to rodents. And sure, well, thank you. I think you've done a very nice job, actually, of summarizing most of what I have to say, um, <laughs> which is that we are very interested recently in, in looking at the differences between the animal models that most of us use or have traditionally been using to study the cortex of the brain, and that's uh, generally the rodent, the mouse model, uh, and compare that to the human, uh, which is really very different. And part of that is to highlight the differences, but also to understand the similarities, because I think the mouse models are still very, very useful uh, because of all the advantages they have in terms of uh, uh, easy accessibility, uh, cost, uh, the ability to make transgenic models in mice, which you couldn't do in humans, and so on. And so I think the important thing is to understand what those limitations are, not necessarily to say that, that, that it's too limited. And it turns out that the human, as you might expect, is much more complicated than the rodent. And in ways uh, that we, in some ways, anticipate, in other ways, uh, are, are discovering that uh, are uh, unexpected. So what, what my particular area of interest in is in, as you mentioned, is uh, early stages of brain development, when there's uh, the production of neurons and their migration and location in, in what are known as germinal zones that are actually the source of all the neurons and glial cell types that make up the adult brain. And so the processes that are going on there are largely related to the way cells divide and the way they reproduce and the kind of neurons that that they ultimately make. And the mouse has been extremely uh, productive in the last decade or so in giving us insights into how this happens in the what are known as the uh, ventricular proliferative zones. 
So the entire nervous system in all of us, uh, including the rodents, begins with a sheet of cells known as the neural plate. And this eventually forms a tube known as the neural tube. And from that little tube uh, come all the rest of the cells that ultimately make up our adult brains. And so those cells that form that plate and ultimately the neural tube are what you might call neural stem cells because they make all the different cell types that are eventually found in, in the adult brain. And in many ways, the mouse is a very good model for what happens at those early stages. But in the human brain, shortly after that neural tube closes and the uh, production of uh, the first early neurons begins, there's a second large proliferative zone that begins to emerge that, as you mentioned, isn't found in the mouse. And this is known as the um, subventricular zone, or more specifically, the outer subventricular zone. Because in the mouse, there is already a subventricular zone. It's called the inner subventricular zone in the human. It's relatively small. It contains a cell that's the daughter of the neural stem cells. And so maybe for a minute, I'll, I'll talk about the lineage, how one cell produces another. So the beginning of the uh, neural tube are cells called neuropathelial cells. And they, after a short period of time, start making neurons. When they do that, they actually change their features and become more and more like a type of cell that is known as a radial glial cell. Those radial glial cells used to be thought of as static uh, uh, cells that simply provided a, uh, a scaffolding along which neurons would migrate to get to other places in the brain where they, they would eventually settle and, and develop. And that's because these radial glial cells are radial. They have long fibers which do support migration of neurons. They guide neurons, neurons as they migrate. And that function of radial glial cells was appreciated already almost uh, 50 years ago. And Pascal Rakic especially has uh, really informed our understanding of how those radial glial cells guide neurons during migration. But what hadn't been appreciated until about a decade or so ago is that these radial glial cells are also dividing and producing the neurons themselves. And the way they do that is not by directly making neurons, but instead by dividing and producing a daughter cell that itself divides to make the neurons. So it's a two-step process. And the radial glial cells divide, and they make daughter cells that form in a layer just next to where the radial glia are, and that's known as the subventricular zone. And that's where those cells undergo a division that produces neurons. Then the neurons from there migrate along the radial glial fibers to where they wind up in uh, the adult brain. And that's been understood now, as I mentioned about a decade ago, in the rodent, primarily in the mouse and also in the rat. And very similar uh, processes have been assumed to occur in all other mammalian cortical structures, including the human brain. But if you look at the human brain, as people have done now for almost 100 years, you can see that there is a large number of uh, dividing cells that are not in these periventricular regions. They're quite a distance away from that tube, the so-called ventricle, and yet they're dividing. And the question is, what are they doing? Are they making neurons? Are they making glial cells? You know, what exactly is happening in that zone? And as you mentioned, that zone doesn't exist in the mouse. And a number of insights had emerged over the years uh, where people have reasoned that there must be a lot of neuron production in that zone. And part of the reason for that is that if you look at monkey brain, these zones exist in the monkey, and those zones are extremely large at stages when the ventricular regions, which is the region that we discussed in the mouse where most neurons seem to come from, have actually gotten very small. So you can look at stages in the later development of a, of a monkey where huge numbers of neurons are being produced. And the subventricular zone, especially this outer subventricular zone, is very large at that stage. And the ventricular zone is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and is actually very, very small. And so just the numbers alone would argue that neurons for the huge brain can't be coming 
from this little bit of ventricular zone that's left at that age, but must be coming from this larger region of the outer subventricular zone. And Pascal Rakic even reasoned that that was probably the case. And also uh, Colette Hay and Henry Kennedy and Ian Smart and a number of other investigators had uh, really early on decided that this must be a large neurogenic region, area where neurons come from. But it hadn't really been studied very well. And you can imagine the limitations of doing this in, in humans for sure, and even in, in primates was, was not easy. And so that created an opportunity for ourselves and others to start looking at what kind of cells are found in that outer subventricular zone, and it confirmed that they're making neurons, and then how they're making neurons. And so that was the subject of what I talked about today. So in our lab, we've done this by actually having access to human fetal tissue that we could culture in different ways. And one way we could culture the, the tissue was to actually slice it into thin sheets and uh, do time-lapse imaging of labeled cells and watch them as they divide and migrate in a structure that was really reasonably intact in these thin slices. And what we found were in the outer subventricular zone, there were two kinds of uh, broad classes of cells that were dividing. One was very much like those ventricular radioglia that we've seen in the mouse, except that they're not in the ventricle. They're away from the ventricle. Uh, th they are not like epithelial cells that we've seen before, uh, even though they have some epithelial features. And when they divide, they divide in a way that we call asymmetrical, which means that they produce two daughter cells, one of which is the self-renewed radioglia, behaves like a new radioglial cell. But the daughter cell is very different. The daughter cell uh, divides in a different mode that we call symmetrical division, where every time it divides, it produces two daughter cells that appear to be the same as each other, not different from each other, and that they divide multiple times to produce doubling and then doubling and then doubling again. So you start out with a single cell, then you have two, then you have four, then you have eight. And we think that that amplification occurs in a way that actually increases the number of cells that are all exactly the same in the end. They all become neurons that then go to the same part of the brain and function the same way. So those transit amplifying cells that go through those symmetrical divisions, that was one of the kind of cells that we found in the outer subventricular zone. The other cells I mentioned earlier is this radioglial-like cell that isn't really a radioglial cell. Because radioglial cells are, by definition, uh, neuroepithelial. And to be an epithelial cell, it actually has to be uh, embedded in, uh, make contact with the basal lamina, and also have a connection with what's called the adhesion belt. And this is uh, right at the surface of the ventricle, where uh, the end feet of the radioglial cells are coupled, attached one to another. And these cells that we've described in the outer subventricular zone are, are disconnected from that adhesion belt. They have no connection with that ventricle. Um, and so, in a sense, they're, they're not true epithelial cells. Uh, on the other hand, they mark with all the same, what we call markers, that uh, have been used to identify radioglial cells. And that's based on proteins that they express. For example, they have intermediate filaments that are little fibrils inside the cell against which you can make antibodies. And those antibodies stain these radioglial fibers in the ventricular cells just the same as these outer subventricular fibers. In fact, we haven't been able to find anything molecularly that we can use to label those outer subventricular cells differently than the ventricular cells. And yet we think they're very different. And so we, we call them outer subventricular radioglia-like cells, or ORG cells, or ORG cells for short. So at least we have a name for them. We define them by the location, the fact that they don't have a connection to the ventricle, and more recently, because in our time-lapse images, uh, we find that they divide in a very characteristic way. Behavior that they have when they divide is very characteristic. That we use that as part of the definition as well. So for the time being, 
we're, we're a little bit hamstrung because we don't really uh, have a single marker that we can point to that's distinctly different in these cells than in the ventricular rate of glia that have been described already in the mouse. But we're hoping soon we and others may come up with markers that are unique because we do think that these cells are going to have proteins and other what we call markers that are different than what we see in the ventricular rate of glia. We just haven't discovered them yet. But meanwhile, we are able to look at these cells, even though we don't know exactly uh, how different they might be from ventricular rate of glia, and watch what they do during normal brain development. And what we find is that they produce these transit amplifying daughters that make the neurons. We find that they also jump each time they divide. And as a function of the jumping that they do, they actually serve to expand the outer subventricular zone over time. So it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And then ultimately, as I say, it becomes the biggest progenitor zone, much larger than the ventricular zone from which it actually arises early on. And so we think that what goes on in that outer subventricular zone, the behavior of these ORG cells, their daughter transit amplifying cells, those are going to be very important not just for normal brain development, but possibly for understanding diseases of the cerebral cortex. And, and that's another area where I think the mouse model, uh, the mouse that we use as a model, uh, might be inadequate for certain kinds of studies. Um, as you may know, there are a lot of diseases that affect the cerebral cortex in people. And some of them are very dramatic, like microcephaly or lysencephaly, where there are large cortical malformations. Others are much more subtle, like schizophrenia or autism. And the question is, how well would you be able to model all of these diseases in a mouse that doesn't have the same kind of cerebral cortex as we do? And what we're beginning to realize is that this outer subventricular zone, this progenitor zone that isn't present in the mouse, might be very important uh, for understanding how these diseases emerge. So we've been looking at the gross cortical malformations like lysencephaly and microcephaly, and we do think that many of those, the clues to those diseases, uh, are actually in that outer subventricular zone population, which are very difficult, if not impossible, to study in the mouse because they don't exist in the mouse. And more subtle diseases like autism and schizophrenia may also have, uh, may also arise from uh, abnormal behaviors or abnormal signaling that goes on in this zone, which once again is going to be very difficult to, to study in a mouse because there's almost none of this present in the mouse during development. So do we know, maybe I missed it in there, but do we know the, the generation mechanism for these uh, outer radial glial cells? And because it seems like, do they, do, are they, do they divide from the ventricular radial glia and I mean, do they have like a finite proliferative capacity? Do we know anything about how many daughter cells they can produce? And is that species specific? What do we know about that? All right. So there's several questions you asked, and I can answer some at least. So we do have a handle now on where they come from. And it was embedded essentially in what I mentioned earlier, that, that initially the, everything comes from the neural tube. And that neural tube uh, is essentially where the ventricle forms. And so eventually all these ORG cells and the, everything in the outer subventricular can be lineage traced back to the neuroepithelial cells that line that tube. And when the rated glial cells begin to form is when we first see the original ORG cells, the earliest ORG cells. And we've been watching carefully as to what happens in that ventricular zone that might give rise to the ORGs. And what we've observed is that the ORG cells come when a ventricular rated glial cell divides in a particular orientation. Mm -hmm. So the, what we call the cleavage plane, when a cell divides into two cells, uh, that happens because of a cleavage furrow that ultimately divides the cells in two. And the angle that cleavage plane makes to the surface of the ventricle can be measured. And in the mouse, almost all of the cleavages are what we call vertical. They happen at right angles to the surface of the ventricle. So they're all dividing very much in the same plane. 
But in a human, it's been observed for a long time now that there's a mix of cleavage plane angles. Some of them are vertical, and others are at right angles, namely horizontal, the op 90 degrees different. And it was not clear as to what the differences represented. And what we're now learning is that it looks as though the horizontal cleavages, the ones that are uh, 90 degrees from the vertical, are the ones that are actually generating ORG cells. Because when those cells divide, one of the two daughter cells moves out into the outer subventricular zone, and then, as far as we can see, takes up residence as an ORG cell. The other one, by the way, uh, becomes a self-renewed ventricular radioglia. It grows a new fiber that it's lost, and after a short period of time, looks just like a regular ventricular radioglia cell, and then can go through another division with a vertical rather than horizontal cleavage, which makes two radioglial cells, or makes a daughter cell that behaves like a, what we call an intermediate progenitor, but it doesn't matter. The important thing is that when it divides horizontally, that seems to be when it produces an ORG cell. So this idea of spatial regulation of, of, the, of neurogenic divisions is, is so important, and it's, I guess, important throughout. I mean, this isn't the only time we see it being so deterministic of self-fate, but um, what do we know what sets up these spatial relationships and arrangements between cells? Do we have any idea of the molecules involved or the signals involved? Well, so there's another example of how the mouse has been so powerful, but even the mouse uh, studies have really derived from invertebrate studies. And in the case of, uh, of these fate-determining signals with, uh, in correlation to cleavage plane angle, most of that comes from models in the fruit fly. And in the fly, it's been very elegantly shown that there are fate-determining signals uh, that are inside the cell, and before division, they are segregated in the cytoplasm in the cell, and segregated in a way where some of them collect at one pole or the other. And then, if you can imagine a cell where these substances are all collecting at one end, that if the cell divides and this cleavage furrow I mentioned forms in a way that splits and, and shares those determinants equally between the two daughters, that may determine or dictate a symmetrical fate. That is, if, if the determinants are equally shared between the two daughters, then the fates of the two daughters are the same. But if the cleavage plane is at a different angle, so that all of those fate determinants are segregated into just one of the two daughter cells, so one gets all and the other gets none, that may dictate an asymmetrical fate. So those fate-determining substances and how they are distributed among the two daughter cells actually dictate the symmetry or asymmetry of the division. And that model has been shown, you know, very elegantly in the fly. It turns out there are quite a number of these fate-determining substances. Uh, they go by names like bazooka, inscrutable, numb, partner of numb, the PAR proteins, quite a number of them. Most of them worked out in invertebrates, and homologs have been found in the vertebrate system, including in the ventricular radioglia that I've mentioned earlier. And so it was very easy to think that the model in the fly can be transposed to the neuropathelium of the developing nervous system. And that's, in fact, what was done. The players are all there. The cells are dividing with what appear to be very determined cleavage plane angles, just like in the fly. But the model didn't exactly fit uh, because the cleavage angles... So, so let me just mention that these cells have what are called apical-basal polarity. That means between the apical and the basal side, they have a... Uh, a uh, uh, they have polarity molecules distributed. They have apical membrane, basal membrane, and basal lateral membrane that differ from each other uh, by molecules that are anchored in those different places. So that gives these cells polarity. And that also resembles very much what's been seen, as I mentioned, in the, in the fly. But the problem is that if you look at a vertical cleavage plane in these neuroepithelial cells compared to the vertical cleavage in the fly ganglia, you would think that the vertical cleavage should create uh, a symmetrical division. But in the neuropathelium, when it's a vertical division, it's an asymmetrical division. It's the exact opposite 
of what's seen in, in the central nervous system of the fly. One way to explain that is that it may not be the apical basal polarity that counts. It could be the planar polarity, that is at 90 degrees. Maybe the determinants are not being segregated along the apical basal direction. Maybe they're being segregated in the planar dimension, in which case a vertical cleavage would have the opposite effect, which is instead of being symmetrical, would be an asymmetrical division. So that's one way to resolve the difference. Um, but the other paradox that I would introduce is that uh, the outer subventricular zone that I've described in the human turns out to be an area that's devoid of any of these fate-determining signals. That is, no one has yet been able to show, quite the opposite, people have looked and not found any of these uh, uh, fate determinants in the cells that are in the outer subventricular zone. And yet, those cells are going through symmetrical, some of them, and others asymmetrical divisions, very much the same way as the cells in the ventricular zone, in the absence of these fate-determining signals. So that raises, you know, turns the whole thing upside down and says, well, if you can have symmetry of division and asymmetry of division that doesn't seem to have any regard to these fate-determining signals, then there must be something else, some other molecules perhaps, determining whether cells are symmetrical or not. And, and if that's the case in the outer subventricular zone, maybe that's also the case in the ventricular zone. That is, maybe there's something we don't know yet, we don't yet know that determines symmetry of division in these, you know, uh, mammalian progenitor cells that isn't the same exactly as, as it is in the, in the fly. And, and so I think, this, so we don't have the answers to these questions, I should mention, um, but we have the questions. I mean, you know, it may be that uh, the outer subventricular zone will teach us something about what really determines the symmetry of division in the developing brain. And it may turn out to be different than the prevailing model now, which really borrows most of its, uh, you know, details from, from invertebrates, from the fly. So, uh, the question. So, one goal is to, to develop a, a multi-layered cortex, six layers. And uh, each layer, depending on where you are, will have uh, different densities of neurons, right? So, um, the model that you have, you have certain numbers of uh, divisions from the ORG cells. So, is there a, a temporal component uh, relating this to an inside-outside migration in that at a certain time point, you'll have a certain number of divisions to generate one particular layer, and at another point, it may not necessarily be two or three cell divisions, it may be four or five. Do you have any evidence for that kind of uh, uh, um, temporal difference in uh, proliferation rate and the formation of different layers of the cortex? Right, so you're raising some very, very interesting questions, and uh, I have to just say that I, I don't know the answer to those questions. I think the state of our knowledge now, in terms of the number of divisions, or even the pattern of divisions over time, in the human brain is, is really uh, just beginning, and you know we're just scratching the surface. So no one has, as far as I know, has asked those same questions that you've raised now in terms of human or primate development. However, uh, some hints emerge, once again, from model systems, like in the fly, for instance, where Christo has done some really elegant experiments showing that uh, as progenitor cells, the mother ganglion cell in the nervous system of the fly starts making daughter cells, there is a series of, uh, of uh, gene expression networks that change with each cell cycle. So transcription factor expression in a single cell might be different before and after it divides. And then the next cell cycle, there'll be a, another difference. And then the next cell cycle, yet another. And so what happens is that each of those cell cycles, the daughters, the daughter cells that are produced, inherit a certain set of transcription factors. And whatever they happen to inherit, the pattern uh, dictates the fate of all of their daughter cells. And so the next cell cycle, another daughter is produced with a slightly different crupple or some other uh, transcription factor. 
and, and that will uh, fix the daughters that it makes. And they'll be a little different than the one from the cell cycle before or the cell cycle afterwards. So that doesn't tell you how many cell cycles, but it does tell you that with each cell cycle, there is a different daughter cell produced. And so the fates of those daughter cells are dictated by which cell cycle they were born in. And something similar may well happen in you know, human cortical development. That one of these ORG cells, for instance, when it goes through a series of asymmetrical self-renewing divisions, where each time the ORG cell gets re renewed, essentially, and then it divides again, and once again it's renewed, the daughter cells are all different from each other. There may be a very similar mechanism at play. There could be molecular changes with each cell cycle that dictate the fate of the daughter cells. And if that's the case, then when we say the radial glial cell remains self-renewed, that is, there's a new cell, uh, there's a, uh, one of the two daughters is a radial glial, the other one's something else. The next division, there's a radial glial cell and something else. It sounds like it's the same radial glial cell each time, but it may not be the same. It may be different by virtue of the fact that it's now in the second, the third, or the fourth cell cycle. And so with each cell cycle, it may change. It may change by its molecular composition and by its fate. So, so to answer your question, you know, it's the, as each cell cycle proceeds, they may not be the same. And so there may be a mechanism that uh, allows changes to occur based on the number of times the cell has divided. Um, then there's also the possibility of a clock. That is, you know, they, they keep track of the number of divisions. So even if the cell remains the same for five or ten divisions, it may reach a certain point where after X number of divisions, it then changes fate and becomes something else. So, so there are lots of different mechanisms you can imagine, and some of these have been shown in other animals and other parts of the body, but whether they apply to the human brain or not is, I think as far as I know, is not yet understood. Um, but it's a wonderful area to investigate. And it really gets at the heart of, of, of where the diversity of cell types come from. How do you make all the different cell types that we find in the adult brain? So just listening to this, uh, one could get the impression that there are exactly two kinds of cortex, mouse cortex, and human cortex, and that they are as different as night and day. And of course, mouse cortex has the same six layers as human cortex, so from the, from the sort of formation of layers and architectonics point of view, they must have something in common. And then there are all these other kinds of animals. So um, the, the, the outer subventricular layer is not completely unique to humans. Could you say something about you know, what having that gives a cortex and what, how it lays out in Yeah, biology? so that, I'm very glad you mentioned that, and you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I've uh, set it up um, far too polarized than it really is, and uh, to make the point that the human brain isn't the same as the mouse, which I think all of us would agree with anyway. Um, but there are a lot of similarities, and, and just to mention it, these ORG cells that I've been talking about that we described in part by their behavior, the fact that they jump and divide. Well, once we saw those cell types, one of my postdocs was very intrigued as to whether we could find them in other animals, in other species. And of course, the first animal he turned to was the mouse, because, you know, first of all, we had lots of mice in the lab, and secondly, that was the common model everyone uses. Uh, and so he reasoned that we could have missed these cells in our previous work and other laboratories as well, because when we label radial glia, we do so by putting a marker into the ventricular space. And so if a cell didn't contact or border the ventricle, it wouldn't get labeled. And these ORG cells, as I mentioned, lose contact with the ventricle. So they wouldn't, even if they were there, we wouldn't have been able to see them because they, they would have been invisible to our techniques. So instead of putting his label into the ventricle, he put the label into the cortex itself, which is you know, where these cells, uh, are, the fibers of these cells travel. When he did that, and we took slices and did time-lapse images, sure enough, we found mouse ORG cells. 
And we can identify them because they did the same thing as they do in the human. They jump and divide, as I mentioned, very characteristic. And they have the same morphology. They have a single fiber that goes up to the cortex, and they don't have a fiber that goes to the ventricle. And they stain with PAX6 and SOX2 and other markers. So they look just like the human ORG cells, which we at first thought might be human unique, but they're in the mouse. And the jumps they make are smaller, and there are far fewer of them in the mouse than there are in the human. But they are there. And so you're absolutely right. It's not black and white. In fact, the mouse can be used to model certain features of these ORG cells. And uh, one of my uh, colleagues, former student in my lab, uh, 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 Steve Nocter, who has his own lab now at UC Davis, has looked at a variety of different species, including the mouse and, uh, and a variety of non-human primates and human, and he has defined an outer subventricular zone in all these species, including in the mouse. Now, some people would argue that there isn't a real outer subventricular zone in a mouse, and you have to stretch quite a bit to imagine that there is one. Uh, but I'm just saying that, you know, there is at least one investigator who feels that there are reasons to think there could be a, a very primitive outer subventricular zone even in the mouse. And most other mammals do have ORG-like cells and outer subventricular zone of one sort or other. So it's all a question of degree, and, and things do happen in an evolutionary sense, you know, very slowly and gradually, and all these mammals are related to each other. So the human is not as distinctly different as, uh, as I may have suggested. And, um, in fact, there are lots of similarities that I think are just as important as the differences. So it was, uh, it was a little disappointing to me in one sense because one difference that I think about all the time and see all the time in animals is gyrocephalic versus lysencephalic animals. And I, an outcome that would have seemed pleasing to me would be if gyrocephalic animals had it and lysencephalic animals didn't. But it didn't turn out that way either exactly. Well, you're right. When we first described these uh, ORG cells, um, there were a couple of papers that came out right away that, that suggested, exactly as you're saying, that these ORG cells were the reason for gyrencephaly, and that, in fact, they were characteristic of gyrencephalic species. So, you know, primates are not the only animals that have folded cortices. Um, and it was originally thought that the primates were the only animals that had an outer subventricular zone. That clearly is not the case. There are outer subventricular zones in lots of animals that are not primates. And once we described ORG cells in primate, it was assumed that they were characters not just of primates, but of all those animals that had folded cortices. Because, in, you know, folding seems like the logical outcome of an expanded cortex. That is, if you have a cortex that gets usually expanded tangentially, and you want to fit it into a reasonable sized skull, calvarium, one way to do that is to fold it. And, and certainly if you unfolded the human cortex, it would be huge. It would be much, much larger than, than it is because the folding really allows it to be compressed. But that, uh, that explanation, that namely uh, any animal that has a big expanded cortex uh, needs to fold the cortex in order to fit it into the brain, doesn't actually always fit. So the animals with the largest cortices and the, highly, the most highly folded cortices include elephants and whales, you know, the, the huge animals, um, and they have highly folded cortices. But their cortices are thin. They have fewer neurons, you know, uh, per radial dimension than we have in the human brain. So it's not as though they have so many more cells and they folded the brain in order to fit them into the skull. They have some fundamentally different structure of the laminar layer organization of the cortex as well. So folding is not just a solution for getting more neurons into a limited amount of brain. Folding has something else that you know, is driven by some other features. And I, I think it's fair to say that you know, we still don't understand why some animals are more folded, have cortices that are gyrencephalic and others don't. Um, I mentioned in my talk today that the clearest correlation is with body size. 
So as I mentioned, elephants and whales, you know, the largest animals have the largest, uh, have the highest degree of folding. And uh, even among uh, subfamilies of mammals, like rodents, for example, mice and rats are small rodents. They have smooth or unfolded brain. Uh, but the capybara is a very large South American rodent. Uh, it's big, and it has a folded brain. I mean, not highly folded like a primate, but it has several folds that are very obvious that the mouse and the rat don't, don't have. So the larger the animal, the more likely it's to have foldedness. And, you know, that, uh, and why that should happen, I think, is still unclear. How it happens is unclear. I think all these animals clearly have ORG cells, but so do all the lysencephalic species. So having an ORG cell may be necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient to dictate you're going to have a folded brain. Something else is going on. You mentioned it's, uh, that there's a correlation between body size. Um, can you speculate, is there a, also a correlation with uh, the size of the uh, ventricular lumen? Because it seems like in, in the animals, some pictures that I saw, that the, uh, the ventricular lumen was much larger in the elephants, suggesting that there are more epithelial progenitor cells, suggesting there may be uh, more of a, let's say, one-to-one correlation, whereas in humans there's a small uh, luminal layer suggesting that there may be a greater expansion of the neuroepithelial into these ORG cells. Well, uh, so you're raising some very interesting observations having to do maybe with the balance of ventricular radioglia to outer radioglia or to some other progenitor cell types during development, and, and that may account for differences in the adult. I would caution that when you're talking about those observations, it's really adult brain that you're looking at. And, you know, one of the things that you can't see in the adult is what the relative sizes were during early development. So, you know, in an early developing animal, the ventricle might be very small and the outer subventricular zone might be very large or vice versa. And that may or may not be reflected in what, what you wind up with in the adult. So, so, you know, that may be different. In fact, I would argue that having a larger ventricle in the adult might have more to do with how much white matter there is in the brain, for example, or, or the, the thickness of the cortical layers, which might dictate how much uh, ex vacuo effect you would have, how big the ventricle gets to be because there isn't as much gray or white matter above it. And you know that may or may not relate to the number of progenitors that were present in early stages of development. So, so it's all a little bit more complicated. Um, but, <laughs> as you mentioned, you could imagine that uh, you could get a different, a large brain either by having more ventricular radioglia and not as many outer radioglia, or by having a lot of outer radioglia and not as many ventricular radioglia. And those two different solutions to the problem might wind up with a brain that has a different architecture in the adult. Um, but, but I don't think anything like that has been studied at that level, so, so we can't make those correlations. But, but it's a very interesting feature. Hasn't, hasn't been explored. Is the outer subventricular zone only in the developing brain, or is still um, exists there uh, through the adult brain, or it just becomes smaller? Right. So the outer subventricular zone is really a, uh, a feature of the developing or fetal brain. Mm-hmm. Um, the stages that I've been describing, it is a neurogenic region. That yeah. is, that's where neurons come from. But it also later on becomes a gliogenic zone. I mean, mm-hmm. it seems to be where a lot of the glial cells. Uh, some of the uh, oligodendrocyte precursor cells mm-hmm. and probably astrocytes also arise, or at least are present in the outer subventricular zone, more and more so at later stages in development. Mm-hmm. But by the time, say, of human birth, uh, the outer subventricular zone is, is, is largely gone, mm-hmm. uh, although in preemies it remains present, and it's a highly vascularized zone, and uh, often in preemies they can develop uh, intracerebral hemorrhages, 
in in those areas, which are in, at those stages known as um, as uh, uh, damn, this is like a ventricular zone hemorrhage, but there's another name they use for it: germinal matrix hemorrhages. So the germinal matrix uh, where the hemorrhages occurs is essentially that zone uh, in premature infants. But in a full-term infant, uh, the outer subventricular zone is pretty much gone. Mm -hmm. So our brain don't have uh, outer subventricular zone? No, but there's been some questions of whether it has <laughs> ORG cells. Oh, yeah. And it's possible That's that my there next could question. be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. Uh, the ORG cells also, over time, start expressing uh, gliofibrillary acidic protein, GFAP, mm -hmm. which is also characteristic of glial cells. Mm -hmm. And so they, there may be in resident in the adult brain some of these ORG-like cells that have been classified as, as astrocyte or glial-like cells mm -hmm. that could potentially still have the potential, you know, the possibility of dividing and producing neurons or at least neural precursor cells themselves. Um, and that'll be interesting to look for once we have markers that are, you know, unique mm -hmm. to these cells. Right now it's difficult to sort them out from other kinds of glial cells mm -hmm. or astrocytes. But if there were unique markers early in development, we could see if they persist in brain regions in the adult. Yeah. Um, so that would be very interesting. Mm -hmm. I have a kind of goofy question. Uh, that, uh, when people talk about the evolution of six-layered cortex, so it, you may not want to try to answer this question. I don't know. Uh, don't feel bad if it's an impossible question. When people talk about the evolution of six-layered cortex, one of the favorite stories is that three-layer cortex somehow doubled over itself and one piece became the supragranular layer and another piece became the infragranular mm -hmm. layers. And you can kind of almost see it happen because the dentate gyrus is flat in, in lizards and then it becomes sort of bent around mm -hmm. and you could almost picture it. If it kept going, you would end up with one cortex that was twice as thick. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to see given the way the cortex grows. How anything like that could ever happen? Is there any clue about the possibility of things like that? Well, I don't see it happening the way you described. But rather, if you look at reptiles, and, and you hinted at this, so the reptiles have a laminar dorsal cortex, the dorsal cortex being the part that will eventually expand to be what we see as the cerebral cortex, multi-layered, six-layered cerebral cortex in, in primates. So in a phylogenetic or evolutionary sense, the stem reptile was sort of the ancestor where the cortex first became really laminar. So in uh, amphibians and fish, it's not, and in birds, of course, it's very nuclear. But in reptiles, you see a laminar dorsal cortex. And it has three layers, essentially. There's a single cell layer, and then above and below, which is where the pyramidal cells are. And then interneurons, uh, inhibitory cells, are above and below in this uh, uh, molecular zones. And that three-layer cortex resembles uh, archicortex in mammals, which is the hippocampus. So in the hippocampus, you have a similar arrangement with a single layer of uh, principal cells and then interneurons above and below. So the dorsal cortex, the so-called cerebral cortex of the, of the reptile, um, looks a lot like you know, the ancient cortex that still persists in the area of the hippocampus in, you know, in mammal brain. Um, and the interesting thing during development is that there is a ventricular zone which contains radioglial cells that make neurons. But what you don't have is a subventricular zone in the reptile, at least not in the dorsal cortex. So the dorsal cortex has one proliferative layer, which is the ventricular zone. And then there are occasional cells, little mitotic figures that you can see, uh, cells that are dividing just away from the ventricle, but very few. So there isn't enough of that layer to form a distinct subventricular zone. And as I mentioned, there are three layers in the cortex. 
as you go into six-layered isocortex or mammalian cortex with six layers, they all, all those animals in early development will have a subventricular zone filled with those intermediate progenitors, the daughters of the radioglial cells. And so it's easy, and in fact, it's very tempting, and uh, Zoltan Molnar and others have uh, highlighted that the appearance of that subventricular zone and the progenitors that are there correlate with especially the upper cortical layers in the mammal. So that in order to get the six-layer cortex, you had to add another progenitor zone and a different type of progenitor cell. And so that's more likely to result in the multiple layers that we have than any duplication of the original, you know, layers that were there, the first three layers. So I think there's some, you know, additional new cell types that arose because of new progenitor cells uh, that are responsible, especially for the middle and upper cortical layers. So maybe tracing the fate of all these progenitor cells as you are doing will sh show us one group that's giving rise to the infragranular layers and another. That may be the case. It may be the case. Uh, there was a study from uh, Dr. Mueller at San Diego suggesting that there were progenitors set aside at early stages uh, specific for upper cortical layer neurons, even at a stage when the upper cortical layers weren't being generated yet. Uh, there's some new data sort of uh, questioning that idea, and I think that the dust hasn't settled or we don't have a final word yet on exactly whether there are progenitor cells set aside specifically for certain layers. The other option, the other model, is that you have progenitors that... Uh, go over time, that, uh, sorry, that over time make first deep and then uh, upper cortical layers. So that the same progenitor early on will make deep cortical cells and then later on make mid layer and then later on make upper layer and then in the end maybe turn into astrocytes. Um, so that idea means that all the cells are capable of, of generating all the cell types over time. Whereas the other model, that namely you've got progenitors set aside early on for just making specific cell types, whether they're upper or deeper cortical layers, uh, suggests a real uh, different uh, mosaicism of progenitors. You know, you've got a whole population of different cells coexisting at an early stage that are already fated to do all these different things, rather than a sort of a homogeneous population that are going step by step through this transition of deep to upper layers. So those two models, you know, are not necessarily incompatible. There could be some mix of the two. Um, but we still haven't sorted out which of the two is really going on. I think the evidence now is mostly in favor of the single progenitor making over time different types, different layers. So the, the evolutionary step then wasn't really that two, three-layer cortices bending over each other, but rather I don't think so. some progenitors just underwent some additional divisions. And yes, I think, that, I think that's right. I think that's more likely to be the case. And, and in the ORG cells that I've been describing in the human, they're probably more uh, responsible for what we call the hypergranular layers, that is the up, mid to upper cortical layers in primate, which are the most cell dense. Most of the density of those cells comes from the production of neurons by these ORG cells. So I, I agree with the addition of a different type of progenitor, maybe a different set of a number of divisions that it makes or something, has increased the cellularity of the upper cortical layers. So I see it all being linked back to the diversity and behavior of the progenitors. Excellent. Thank you for being with us, Arnold Kriegstein. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>